Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix and Book Club podcast. Recorded today on New Year's Day 2023. 2023. With me, as always, is that slim, surly Frank, Jeff Goad. <laughs> hey, don't, don't mess with my hat. <laughs> uh, this week, we have a hulking non-Abyssinian, Bill Gosselin, with us as our special guest. So excited and honored. Uh, Bill, hello. Welcome to the show. Uh, Hi, how are you? How are you? How are you guys? Happy New Year! Um, again, thanks for um, thanks for responding to my my uh, my text. I think I texted you guys. So I was like, "Hey, I love your show, and I, I'm in the creative space, and I would love to." Um, you know, I just love the format, so I appreciate you responding and being available and making yourself being open to it. Well, one of the really exciting things about this show is just meeting all the people, new people that we would really never have thought of meeting um, from high to low, so to speak. Um, so, Bill, you are the creator of the upcoming Baby Barbarian comic. Is that right? Yeah. So, uh, issue one was kickstarted last year, and then issue two was just finished, um, literally at the end of the year. Uh, well, I should say the, the 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 art and the colors are done, and now I have to get it to the letterer, and then I have to after that, you know, it becomes a whole supply chain issue and all that. But yeah, yeah. So, right. yeah, number one and two. Yeah. Right. Now, you had alluded in when you reached out to us that you were sort of a lapsed gamer and had gotten back into this. And so this is your way of sort of sharing this with with your kids, this uh, this affection for genre and, and, and the like. Uh, not just your kids. or but You mean the comic? The comic or, or yeah, yeah. Or like what I'm doing. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, I, we always justify it, right? When we when we buy something, we say it's for our kids, but half the time it's for us. <laughs> so, I mean, that's... You know, so I, I think what, like when I was making the, I was really, I, I went to see the Lego movies with my son and I remember going home and I was like, oh my God, there's, they, they like referenced Radiohead, you know? And I was like, I was like, that's so silly. Why are they doing it in the kids movie? And then my <laughs> wife, she was like, well, cause you're the target. You know what I mean? You're the, per- you're the person who's paying for the ticket, there you, go. you know? <laughs> so I used that like baby barbarian. So it's like gonzo fantasy. So it's kind of. It's silly, but I try to put like a lot of illusions. There's tons of illusions. There's um, to old games and stuff. So that you know, and and things that I think would appeal and humor that can also appeal to the adult. You know, like when you're watching a kid show nowadays, they they have they have kind of two levels of humor often, right? For the kids and then also for the adults. And so that's what I was shooting for. Mm-hmm. So so winding it back, you did say that you were gaming in the uh, I guess the late 70s and early 80s so was that with uh, bx or beckme or holmes D or what was, what was your start there well i mean i i literally you know i think like so many other people you kind of remember the first time you get one of those books in your hand you know and i got i think i must have been in elementary school and this kid brought the uh he brought the dungeon masters guy the one with the um you know the ifrit on the mm-hmm. cover yeah. and he's like yeah you know we're gonna play this and you know nobody I mean, we were like second second grade right? Like six or seven years old. So you can't read that thing. I mean, you can't even read it as an adult hardly. Right. But, um, <laughs> and so, you know, it was, it was a typical first adventure where it was just sort of like, whatever I did, I ended in, you know, a, a, a very bad death. You know, it was a, you know, that was the old school, right? The DM power trip, you know, <laughs> so it, there was nothing really resembling a, a game per se, you know, it was just more of a, a power trip by one of my 
one of my um, power trip by one of my classmates using the book as uh, as his proxy. You know, <laughs> right, right. So he could say legitimately, no, like when you play the game of you know whatever. Uh, uh, soldiers like got you no you didn't no i did it's, it's, it's right here in the book i got you right <laughs> yeah <laughs> and and you were you know. were you already a fan at that age of uh fantasy in whatever form or science fiction at that form yeah yeah absolutely i mean it was you know it wasn't as you know so i'm uh, at least i was born 74 so you know that was it wasn't as you know now it's just wide stream it, it wide mm-hmm. ranging it's mm-hmm. mainstream and it's definitely um it's not the niche anymore. It's the norm. But, you know, at that time, um, there were limited things, but they always kind of popped in the library or, um, you know, uh, or in the bookstore. And, you know, I was just, that was one of the, I was that kid, you know, that was always gravitating towards that stuff. So I read a lot of it. And what's kind of fun about growing up at that time is that because it was limited, you know, a lot of the stuff was actually for adults. So, you know, we would read stuff that was very, it's pretty advanced. I mean, even those, even those uh, Dungeons and Dragons books were pretty advanced, you know? So I, I think, it, I, I don't think it's, you know, and that was another thing when I was like, I, I don't, I don't think that, you know, sort of dumbing things down for kids is necessarily the best way to approach um, mm-hmm. whatever it is, you know, comic or literature or a game. I think, you know, you'd be surprised. I mean, I have two sons, so, you know, I've seen in real time how, um, you know, how adaptable, uh, child's mind is right and how you you stretch them they're gonna they're gonna stretch you know mm-hmm. and they're gonna accommodate it and then like many of us you said you became sort of a, a lapse gamer um did you sort of stay in touch just for that sort of that wishful thinking or did it just completely fall out of your mind you know during that long period when you weren't actively gaming well i mean so again i grew up in that time when at a certain point we had to make a decision between sort of having a social life or being a gamer. And mm-hmm. uh, we joke about it. Like you know, my generation kind of jokes about it, but it's kind of sad to be honest with you. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Because it was really, it was very, very looked down upon, you know, and our parents didn't really understand it. They, you know, this is, you, you, this is satanic panic times, you know, mm-hmm. um, early eighties and stuff like that. And it, you know, so, um, <clears throat> so I just, I chose, I just chose, to have a social life and you know yeah be the, i became that guy in high school you know what i mean be mm-hmm. more of a cool kid um and uh you know and some of you know you can pass however you can right into different different kind of communities or different identities in our lifetime and um but i think it was all you know i think what i was really surprised about was you know every now and then i would just flash back to <clears throat> these books or these characters and uh, you know, uh, and I would just have this incredible feeling of like kind of coming home. And then what I realized is like, man, everybody who grew up with that stuff has that same feeling. You know, it was something very, um, it was something very, it was ironically, it was a very safe memory bank <laughs> for so many people at that time because it was entirely kind of our thing. If, if that makes sense. Right. There's know? a certain sense of, uh, acceptance before the niches and, and the clicks forming because yeah. i was saying that just, and i would have to say that whatever else people may say about 5e or the this period when it's not exclusively 5e that did this it's that normalizing of of um sort of meeting in i mean obviously with covid and everything it's now zoom a lot but still meeting in person wanting to be something that's not purely screens it's 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 you know disintermediated 
socialization and communication, right? And, and it does speak to the idea of people wanting communities and, and wanting to be able to do stuff together. Um, so I think that's pretty exciting. Yeah. So uh, we're about to uh, start talking about the uh, book of the week we're reading this week. But before that, uh, Bill, did you have some uh, media or book recommendations for our audience? Sure. So, I mean, these are um, books that, um, you know, I remember from, you know, listening to your guys' podcasts, you know, these are often things that we can derive some kind of maybe some gaming aspect from, but I have this, this is a funny book. It's uh, the, the, the adventures of Ibn Battuta. And it was given to me by my grandfather and I've just been toting it around with me forever. And it's, it's a, it's a scholarly book, but it's a Muslim traveler of the 14th century. And um, a lot of the stuff in our book this week, I actually had some knowledge of because of this book, you know, this is about the Dar al-Islam, which was the enormous uh, Islamic I don't know what you call it, like the like, like an empire, I suppose, you know, <clears throat> that at that time, Europe was really at the, at the back, you know, the far reaches of, which is a lot to do in this book, right? There's a lot of allusions to that with one of the, pro- the main, one of the main protagonists. Um, so this is a really interesting book because, um, <clears throat> you know, again, you know, we're going to talk about the book and it is historically based, but I don't think that there's, I think it's a really interesting experiment to think about you know role playing in a real time period and i don't know about um you guys but i actually learned you know with like deities and demigods i actually learned quite a bit about different cultures and stuff like that through role playing and so i think that's um i i think that is definitely you know i think as we're getting more and more and role playing games is it's really evolving um, and there people are figuring out different applications for, you know, even in workspaces and stuff like that. And I think there is a place for, you know, learning, uh, maybe learning real history through role-playing games, you know, it could be, could be that much more fun, you know? Right. It's interesting. You do mention deities and demigods. I would say that Jeff, wouldn't you say a good portion of our audience, that was the real appendix and over the actual physical little paragraph in the D, D, uh, DMG. It's like from there, oh, sure. I learned about all sorts of different forms of mythology. The original book version had the Cthulhu mythos and then, uh, the, you know, Elric, the limited mythos and, and uh, the Newan Fritz Leiber books in there. Mm-hmm. And so that was o- almost like a, a Rosetta stone for interest in fiction and mythology. And as you say, uh, other cultures, you know, there's that whole chapter no matter how much sort of battlerized or simplified it was native american mm-hmm. uh, you know uh mesoamerican finnish mm-hmm. Nor- norse all these different mythologies so i think that that book itself is probably one of the most influential in terms of my my reading and, and looking at the world and you mentioned a second book there i also just wanted to say i think that book looks, looks really interesting and the cover oh, looks phenomenal. awesome too yeah, yeah. yeah it's an old yeah. it's is an old book so and I made tons of notes. It's it's fun, you know, and again, well, and that, you guys are going to know this, of course, but this is a Gene Wolfe, uh, you know, the mm-hmm. Shadow and Claw. And I guess I one of the games that I did play was called uh, Numenera. And I when I was playing it, and it's like the ninth age, and it's like far, far future, where basically, you know, it's that whole thing, like, what was it? Uh, C.S. Lewis said, you know, about the distinction between magic and technology, right? And yeah. it's that far future. And so I just... I love it also because for a similar, a similar reason, maybe Gentleman of the Road, is that there's so much so much language in there that you can use. And I really, as a writer, I really like language. I like words. But um, yeah, and it's it's a very, you know, it's a, it's a really incredible world. Um, you know, and again, it would be a very, 
um, you know, like setting something in 14th century or 9th century uh, Mediterranean slash, you know, North Africa area, um, you know, the far future is, it's not a classic fiction, fantasy or space opera, you know, right. so you'd have to do things, different things right. with it. Yeah. Well, again, so I, think, I think you're talking about an interesting continuum, right? Because the past, you know, I was like to say the past is another country. Nothing is actually stranger yeah. than our real world past. And then, yeah. then projecting that out to this, you know, uh, end times world, you know, where the sun is literally dying and going out. Um, yeah. I think that that spectrum there. So um, we've alluded to it. So this week's book we're reading is Michael Chabon or Chabon's uh, Gentleman of the Road. And uh, what editions is everybody working with today? So I've got the contemporary Del Rey edition with the elephants marching around the red sun. Mm -hmm. And I also listened to the audible audiobook. Right. I heard that it was Andre Brower did the narration on that. Is that what I heard? Um, I will tr take your word on that. I don't have the audible <laughs> audiobook pulled uh, up right at That's this what um, I think. Uh, uh, Is that Cruz somebody noteworthy? Uh, he played, um, you know, Captain, uh, uh, the captain on Brooklyn Nine-Nine and he was on Homicide oh okay that guy cool yeah yeah and bill whatever what are you working with the same version absolutely okay ditto ditto and, yeah and i'm working with the uh, ebook of the same version but i think i will want to pick up a copy of the trade paperback because i want to be able to see the um gary gianni illustrations you know in yeah those are awesome gorgeous and they also really are. gary gianni also did the illustrations in the um solomon kane and the collected robert e howard books you know the um the, the larger um del rey robert e howard books that came out a few years back too so Terrific. Can I just say one thing? That is, you guys really turned me on to Conan, and now I'm on a Conan trip, which I never was on before. So, thank you for that. Yeah. Because right. so, it's so interesting going, well, not going to a long digression about Conan, but Conan, whatever we think of Conan in our mind versus the actual Conan text are totally different things, right? And so, that's, oh, yeah. that's such an interesting journey. Well, that's what you guys helped me realize. I, I kind of turned off to it, you know, because of maybe more of the mainstream media stuff. Right. The movie now, in this book, I underlined, I think, something like 70 different words that I didn't know. <laughs> right. Um, all of them great. But what is your candidate for a high Gaxian word of the week, if you have one, Bill? I mean, yeah, I think especially for this kind of book, you can find, you know, like mainstream words. But again, what's really interesting is actually looking at the terminology from the time, because this is very well researched book. Right. So I had like, um, I just this one because. Uh, it's such a cool sounding word, bambakion. I don't even know how to pronounce it. And that's what, um, Ar wait, Aram? Um, Amram. Amram, Amram, sorry. Yeah. 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 That's what he wears. And it's, it's like a, it's like a cotton, um, jacket. You know, you've probably seen it that they wore under the Roman legionnaires because he's supposed to be a Byzantine, uh, uh, veteran. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, it's just, it's a, just a, a unit of armor, but it's a kind of a cool sounding word by, Bambachion. Yeah. So that like was the, my a word. quilted coat. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That was a great word. Um, I had a bunch of the book uh, people in our uh, patron book club were on previously, and they all picked great, great words. Uh, Daniel picked Howda, which is the chair on the elephant. Uh, we had other elephant related words Ankus for elephant goad, the Mahout, yep. Mahout for the elephant rider. Uh, Shatranj was a very important word. So that's an early form of chess. Um, but Rick Byrne picked a particularly good word, which was the Radonites, the Radonites, or Radonites, mm -hmm. which is this um, group of, I don't know if it was a term, it's a generic term, or specifically returning to, to the ethnic, uh, the Jewish um, merchants who were traveling merchants who were sort of kept 
the lines of communication open into right. between the Byzantine Empire, the Silk Road, and uh, you know the sort of uh, rev- revival of uh, you know the Holy Roman Empire in in the Western Europe. And we were joking a little bit about it because it sounds like the word Gary Gygax would have picked, but then would have genericized. <laughs> he would have said, oh, the Radonites, but then completely disconnected it from his Jewish roots. Uh, it just means merchant, right? Just like yeah, he used yeah. phylactery with the liches, right? So I think, uh, oh, okay. yeah, Radonite, I think, is a, is a is my particular pick, but I think Bambakian is a great too because it's like that chart of like Glaive, Guizarm, and all this other stuff in the AD&D with all the, the weird weapons rooms. So Yeah, the Swiss those, pole arms, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there we go. Uh, all right. So moving over into the library, what did we think of this book? I thought it was awesome. I thought it was great. Um, you know, I, um, every now and then I would, I would look up, you know, a reference just to make sure that he didn't make anything up and like, you can find everything in our friend Wikipedia. So, I mean, it is a really, really well-researched book. Um, I also think it's, you know, it's such a fascinating, um, you're in history. So this, this is the ninth century, circa AD 950. And, um, uh, and that's a really interesting period, you know, sort of what I mentioned before, you know, it was, you know, this is the middle ages in Europe, you know, what they call like the dark ages. Right. But that wasn't, that wasn't the, that wasn't how the rest of the world was. Right. right. And like, just when you're talking about the Radonite Jews, how they, you know, uh, the world was connected Right, and I think that's what's so interesting about this book um, is that he really explores what um, uh, the the role of like Jewish people in in this part of the world, which spans quite an enormous, you know, it's a huge swath of the world, you know, and just and then all the different other um, people that are in the world at that time. I mean, the whole Khazar city, you know, and their mm-hmm. history of being what it, they were they were Muslims who converted to Judaism so that they would. And then the Radonite scholar at the end thinks it's because he's like, Oh, it's, they did that because um, they didn't want to have to choose between fighting Christians and Muslims. Right. right. So it's just such an, you know, it's such an, it's, it's just so amazing to read a book that is, that is really this well-researched and the language is um, I, you know, I was, I was talking to my sister about it and um, I think that, you know, the language is, uh, you know, it's sort of, you know, it's like, um, what's his face? Cervantes. You know what I mean? It's got that really, really florid, you know, just like the prose is just um, in a good way. You know what I mean? Like, it's enormous. Like, I read the first sentence. The first sentence is like, you know, five or six lines long. And what's interesting about it is that, you know, in, in, you know, in some ways, this world at this time, and this is what I think about some of those older writers, you know, and this is something we sometimes forget in, in modern times is that the world at that time was impoverished in some ways, but it was richer in other ways, you know, and, and, and one of the ways that it was richer, I think was in language, you know, you, and, you know, another thing that they're talking about is how many different languages, um, Zelikman and Amran and everybody can speak, you know, and that, which I understand was a real thing, right? You know, the, everybody had to be able to communicate when they would go into these port towns or whatever, and especially if these people are traveling. So I, you know, sorry, welcome to my brain. I, I tend to digress a little bit, but um, I'm always chasing chasing rainbows, as I guess right. you could say. But it is interesting. You mentioned like this, this not because uh, you know people talk about this globalism as a flattening, and this is a globalist society, as you mentioned. It's a global. They 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 know of 
China. Amram comes from essentially what is now Abyssinia, northern Ethiopia, you know, uh, northern or southern Ethiopia region. So they know at least as far as into Africa and into the Far East, right? So this is global society, but it's not flattened the way, you know, we are living in this, you know, time period now. What do they? What do they mean when they say flattened? Uh, I, I don't think they've heard it's that. It's this thing that you mean a lot just of homogenous, like, just homogenous, homogenous, and yeah, everyone yeah. supposedly has the same values. Everyone, you know, that whole Thomas Friedman. Everyone wants the Lexus and the all, you know, <laughs> and that yeah. kind of, you know, and has the internet and that kind of stuff like that, which we know is not true. But that's the, right. the temptation to to say that. Right. Uh, Jeff, what right. do you think? I thought it was okay. Um, I I've only read one Michael Shaban book prior to this and i read the um the amazing adventures of cavalier and clay and i loved it i loved it so much this did not have that same spark for me um i did not feel that same sense of wonderment and joy that i felt while reading the amazing adventures of cavalier and clay i i i really liked this book at first when we're kind of hanging out in that first scene um and we've got the um the we're gonna I'm going to throw a dagger through your hat and then we're going to have a fake duel and then I'm going to pretend to kill you and we're going to do this so we can swindle people out of their money. That felt very Fafford and the Grey Mouser to me. It felt very Conan to me. I was really feeling it. And then I just feel like I didn't get anything else like that again for the rest of the book. Um, I just, I didn't really care about the characters very much. The plot was um, way more involved than I was expecting. Um, and the afterward at the end of the book infuriated me. Really? Um, I just thought it was so pompous and it just felt like it was Michael Chabon. Um, I mean, first he's talking about how, um, how he's this like literary writer. So you wouldn't expect a literary writer to be writing adventure fiction. Mm. And he just talks about it in this like really insulting way. And then like, and, and it seems like it's a, a weird version of him, like almost kind of like defending his choice to do this. Um, while, um, also kind of like defending his chops as a literary author. I don't know. It, 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 it really sat with me in the wrong way. Hmm. I was not, I, I did not enjoy the afterword. It just really was a very sour f- aftertaste uh, for the entire book. Um, but that said, I mean, I, I did enjoy a lot of it. I liked a lot of the characters. I liked a lot of the, um, well, I just said I liked a lot of the characters. I kind of didn't. I I wanted to <laughs> like a lot of the characters. That's what it was. I, I felt like I was ready to like a lot of the characters, but then it never really fully took me there. Hmm. So um, I don't know. The windup was real good. Um, the rest of the book was, I thought, a little mediocre. And then the afterward just kind of pissed me right. off. So okay. that was my experience reading right. it. It's 2007, right? And yeah. I have an MFA. And when I went in, I actually brought a fantasy piece. And the the person, the first day, you know, I thought that people were open to things. And it was like, you know, it was a boomer professor from, um, and she just like ripped it to shreds and, and talked about why genre is, is she, she literally broke, broke down, gave five reasons why genre, genre was not a legitimate form of literature so mm-hmm. so i mean this is uh this is some, I, okay the, the, i'm oversimplifying but i think this is something that 
my generation gen x kind of spans and that is it like we kind of grew up where there was it was it was bifurcate you know it was dichotomized and yeah. it was like there's literary fiction this is serious stuff genre that's what you go to when you're just gonna have fun and enjoy yourself so i i i I think it's interesting that 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 infuriated you because I understand why it would, but I'm like so used to hearing that already. I'm just like, hey, whatever, man. You know, you got to justify writing a genre piece. You know what I mean? And you got to justify it to all your New York friends or whatever. You know, so. But do you have to justify it to the reader who just finished your novel and to do it in this way that felt really I insulting think, to I me? Think like fifteen I, years I, ago, you might have Jeff. Yeah. I think now you don't. I think 15 years ago, you might have, because I've definitely been... A, to the person who has already finished this book. Well, yeah. it might have been a sh like a, one of his other readers, right? Who came in and was looking for like a literary masterpiece. And he's like, no, I well, want to... Sorry. Okay, I'm going I'm to read you a specific thing that I found to be very... Um, what is the word I'm looking for? Condescending. Um, and if you think there's something funny in the idea of Jews with swords, look at yourself right now, sitting in your seat on a jet airplane, let's say, in your unearthly orange polyester and neoprene <laughs> shoes, listening to digital music, crawling across the sky from Charlotte to Las Vegas, and hoping to lose yourself, your home, your certainties, the borders and barriers of your life by means of a bundle of wood pulp, sewn and glued and stained with blogs, blobs of pigment and resin, people with books. What in 2007 could be more incongruous than that? It makes me want to laugh. That's pretty terrible. That made me want to barf. I just, I did not, I, I, I was I, not happy. I totally with this. get where you're reading, but I do think that, um, I think that Bill's, um, uh, interpretation as that, not as being condescending, but as being uh, proactively defensive. Yeah. I think it is um, sadly, kind of just, right? sadly justified during that time. For um, So a couple things that sort of may give this a little context. Obviously, he was already known as a literary fiction writer and, you know, he had done oh, yeah. um, uh, what is that one about the that they made into the movie the with Michael Wonder Douglas? Boys? Wonder, Wonder Boys. Boys. So that's like, you know, academic writing um yeah and he had a pulitzer at this point right and i was uh, but he was also a huge star trek nerd and he's become a producer like on picard and all these other shows too right so there's that oh, high low that. there's that high yeah. low dichotomy uh, he's done he's written a lot of the mythology for the romulans in the current star trek universe yeah. oh cool yeah, yeah um so and so there's that there's that defensiveness between uh popular wanting to love popular culture and thinking yeah. that something can be, be done with it and then this sort of the the academy tromping down on it and I, um, literally on my same floor at the university, again, I'm not an academic, but there's, uh, again, a creative, M creative writing MFA going on there. And exactly the same thing that <laughs> Bill was mentioning was happening as recently as seven or eight years ago, let alone yep. 15 years ago. Can I, can I just, have, can I add one more thing to that? So I was listening to that. Uh, he's a writer. I think he wrote horror as well. E Everson or something like that. I don't remember his uh, name. Brian Evanson. Yes. Yes. Right. Who, who's the and uh, Mormon? He's right? a professor. Yeah. The, he's a. He's a. He's a. Uh, an ex Mormon. Lapsed right? Mormon. Yeah. Lapsed Mormon. Yeah. And he. I remember listening to an interview with him, and he. He's a professor now, and he's. You know what he. He said this, and I was like, thank you. He said, you know, those of us who read are like professors of, you know, in uh, literature or English. We know all the literary stuff, you know, like I do. I read James Joyce and that kind of stuff, but we also know the genre stuff. And he said, but it's not true. The opposite is not true. The people who are totally stuck in, like what you're saying, Jeff, the people who are totally stuck in the literary world, they immediately dismiss it offhand. I think it's 
I'm glad that that's changing. And I was just, yeah, yeah. anyways, mm-hmm. it's ridiculous to me. It's ridiculous. Cause there's much better writers. Um, you know, there's not all literary fiction is great writing and there's some incredible writers and, fa- mm-hmm. uh, you know, says you guys know, or sci-fi or whatever. Right. Right. And it's so the supposed, you know, literary, uh, nonfiction, the, I mean, literary fiction, uh, literary fiction that's you know realistic it's how realistic is it it's realistic to a certain totally stratum of society people who are educated yep. who have uh and and i feel like with this sort of adventure fiction you can still approach these human truths yes. um but with a level of excitement and, and here we're talking about some very serious things in this book we talk about very serious uh, gender yeah. roles we talk about uh slavery we talk about uh, ethnic conflict, all these things are going on in this book, but also leavened with humor, high adventure. Um, so I enjoyed a lot of that. I would say that to me, the one thing that sort of, um, I appreciate, but sort of where it doesn't line up with some of the things that influenced him was the sort of, I love the discursiveness, but it's not the kind of thing that Robert E. Howard would have done in his fiction or Michael Moorcock would done in their fiction. So sort of like the sentence you mentioned, like these sort of ornate sort of looping back sentences that come back on there. Um, one of my other favorite things is when he's just writing along and then all of a sudden he'll just take a little side hook into like a character who's really just like standing yeah. there in the scene. Right. Mm-hmm. And then it just gets into their mind, like the two Muslim captains who are about to have that argument about whether they should stay loyal to the, you know, the emperor or not. And then there's that old, like grimy old soldier in the back who's yeah. got his own motives or the archer captain or Ragnar Halfface, the Viking, right? It's just like this little sudden, like yeah. side, side turn. It's like a couple of sentences you get into their head and you come right back out to the yeah. main characters again. And I really enjoyed that, but I don't think that's something that. I mean, I think a library might have done something like that, but I don't, I don't think Moorcock would do something like that. I don't think Edgar Rice Burroughs would do something like that or oh, Robert sure. E. Howard. Um, so that's sort of um, a sort of slightly more uh, postmodern trick, if you yeah. will, yeah. that he did. Absolutely. Um, but I do really appreciate the, the setting. I think, you know, it would have been easy to do this as a late medieval story, but then it mm-hmm. falls into all the sort of the Renfair tropes. It's, it's just far enough back it's, you know, it's situated perfectly in the middle of both geographically and temporally. So it's not super, I mean, we don't know that much about the Roman Empire, but we don't have that to draw upon, like, oh, what we think we know about the mm-hmm. Roman Empire or what we think we know about the high Middle Ages, right? So it's, yep. you know, it's situated there really effectively. Um, so I really uh, did enjoy it, but I do think that also by the nature of its serialization, each chapter sort of develops and has its little own arc, but the, the novel as a whole maybe doesn't follow what we might consider, for example, the three-act structure or the rising a- action as obviously as it w- would have been if it was written as a unitary work. So yeah, that I mean, was my first, yeah. The plot is, I think it's fairly simple. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, they just keep going and going and they have their MacGuffin or whatever the thing that they're chasing, their revenge story and the tensions with that. And then it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and there's more and more people getting killed they keep on writing into villages that are being ransacked and then you know different people coming in so it's just it's uh, interesting but I, I wanted to ask you guys something do you think that and this is something i was really wondering do you think that Z- zelik man was the one who made amran a non-violent because he's a non-violent person right he doesn't kill anybody actually and everyone else is dying all, all times around them right 500 mutineers are, are right. put to death and then amran was also a soldier mm-hmm. i don't know did you guys think about that at all 
I know, mean, the, the nonviolent aspect to right. Zelda he might have killed some people like outside the tent because we see him in silhouette when he's but but he is talking about the sort of was it um whichever the I don't know if it's a rabbi or one of the physicians was saying you know the greatest thing you can do is save a single human life right and that's sort of in his ethos as much as he can yeah. so. It's a good question whether it's strictly Zelikman pulling that off on Amram or if that was something that was already in Amram. And, and I mean, Amram is Jewish too. He's just not from a mm. rabbinical tradition, right? Right. But that there's something that, um, uh, you know, was simpatico there right off the spot. It was mm-hmm. not something that he was necessarily fighting against. You know, he wasn't saying like, Zelikman, you're wrong all the time. He seemed to go along with it relatively yeah. reasonably, right? So um, that's a good question. Though. I mean, clearly it feels like this story could have this was like just one, like all great sword and sorcery stories, Jeff, wouldn't you say this felt like it's like coming into a Conan story. It's just like, Oh, it's somewhere in their chronology, but there's clearly stories that happened before. And this clearly could be stories that happen after with these characters. Just, they just happen to happen to be written. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the, the two of them show up together and then the two of them take off together. Exactly. Yep. Um, so what would have Jeff, um, like what is the, as you say, was the wind up, but you think the swing didn't connect. What was the thing that slightly missed for you or, or missed majorly for you that you thought, Hey, if they had just done this thing, it would have really landed for me. I, I don't have an answer to that. Unfortunately, today's one of the days I'm bringing problems, but not solutions. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to 2023, everybody. There you go. <laughs> exactly. Um, I, I don't know. I think um, I wanted, I wanted to be kind of closer in on these characters. I didn't want to be constantly being pulled away from them as much as I was. Huh. Um, I felt that the story just kind of kept pulling me in a bunch of different directions as well. Um, it just, I don't know. It, it, it made it difficult for me to really connect with them mm-hmm. okay. and their journey. Mm-hmm. Do you think that was an artifact of him trying to portray this incredibly, what to us would be an exotic and unknown world. And so that he felt like he had to sort of pull away to show all that rather than sort of living in the characters. I don't know. I can't speak to what his intentions were with right. that. Or but, do you feel um, that? Do you feel that let's say rather than that saying like, uh, yeah. Do I feel that those are his intentions? No, no, no. I'm saying, do you feel like that? Do you feel like that maybe is like, okay, well, if I just stayed in the characters, I wouldn't have learned as much about the world around around him? Or is that something that... Oh, know? no. I think you can still learn a lot about a world through the eyes of these characters. Mm-hmm. I think... Um, I don't know. It, al- it almost felt like he was... Um, I don't know, like he was so focused on the world mm. and getting all the research he had done mm-hmm. into this Onto piece. Page, yeah. Yeah. That um, out with a relatively short page count, getting all that research crammed in, that um, although he he wasn't doing info dumps, it felt like mm. it it was kind of it was it, I mean it's it's not an info dump, but it feels like it's almost like a cousin to it mm. in the sense that he has so much information he wants to get mm. out there yeah. that I think it caused him to lose focus of like the 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 humanity at the center of the story. Hmm. Mm. Do you think that's a uh- uh, Bill, you're a writer. I mean, do you think that's a pretty easy trap to fall into? It seems like it might be with all like the top-down world building you see in sort of like epic fantasy these days. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. No, definitely, because he's essentially world building, but he's, um, uh, you know, and they, I think you know one of the things that when they talk about literary fiction, you know, everyone's like, oh, it's make it character driven, right? And this is not necessarily. I mean, I think you know the the two the, there's three essentially three main characters, right? And and they're sort of I would almost say like almost archetypical even in their identities, right? You know, like their races. You know, one is black, one is white. They're both Jewish, um, uh, 
and then you know one they they both have their traumas they both have their wounds but yeah it's not really i mean yeah i, I that's a that's a that's a tough that's a that's a tough question because yeah i i don't really know i don't really know how i you know yeah like i feel like swords point by ellen kushner is it is a nice counterpoint to this you know, with with Swords Point, I knew who the characters were. I cared about who the characters were, were, and everything that I experienced in the world was absolutely through their eyes. And I didn't get that here. Yeah. And it's okay if you guys did. I mean, I don't know if you guys had a different experience of that than I did. And it's fine. Like people have different experiences of books, but I I, I didn't get that. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, I think this is um sort of uh sort of a interesting sort of uh, impasse, not the right word. I think, I mean, it's an interesting divergence of, of where we experience this book, but I do think that again, it did, it did sort of um, was a little bit discursive. If you were looking, I mean, as it still was an adventure story, but if you were looking for sort of pure sort of Howardian or Burroughsian momentum, you're definitely not going to get that in this book. And so that's, that's just one thing that you definitely need to be aware of. And then uh, conversely, perhaps, um, you maybe you're not getting enough. If uh, you say, well, if I if I want pace, then I might get less character. But if I want more character, then I might get less pace. And then yeah. somehow it doesn't hit either extreme for me for you potentially, Jeff. Like both either the the pace or the characterization or the depth of characterization. Um, well, that, I also don't I also don't agree with that binary because I feel like you like we have lots of examples in sword and sorcery of great characters and great pacing well i wouldn't say it's know? binary i'm just saying it's a, a feat of difficulty so to be able to do both of those things well is not something that is is an automatic uh, is, is what i would i think. agree yeah, yeah i agree yeah but elric and conan and fafford and the gray mouser are phenomenal characters who i get yeah. and they change over time they change not only within their internal chronology but also within the author's chronology of, mm-hmm. of when they're writing them and it's just amazing seeing yeah. these characters like living and breathing in this very vibrant world while also engaging in very fast paced action. Yeah. You know, that that's really interesting when you think about it, because it does kind of make, you know, again, that, that question about, you know, superior writing is not necessarily the, um, you know, the, the, the domain of literary writers you know what i mean especially if what you're talking about jeff is like what are you what are you looking for here you know and i do i do agree with you that these these that's i think what i was getting with that they're they're sort of the characters are kind of like archetypical you know what i mean they're not necessarily really well developed and and so that's a really good point yeah you can do you can have your cake and eat it too depending upon it but but at the same time all those guys, you know, I'm no like Moorcock, right when he was writing elric or no i think with elric i think he would you know i heard that he had to I might have heard it from you guys that he had to go back and read his own graphic novels to remember what he'd written. So he's world building on the fly. So his mm-hmm. pace is catching up. So his world is adapting to his pace versus, you know, in this book, he's, um, he's trying to be true to history. And so that might have created a bit of a bog. And I think that's what you're getting at. Yeah. Hawaii. All right. 
And transferring this over to the gaming side of the conversation, I also think that's why like games like Dungeon Crawl Classics really encourage you to start really small with your world building. Because I think if you start as a game master or a storyteller or a judge or a dungeon master, whatever game you're playing, and you've decided that like you're going to run a Vampire the Masquerade campaign and you're going to figure out the entire map of Detroit and where all of the vampire covens are and the name of every vampire in every coven and exactly their power rating. If, if you are building this ginormous world for the characters to exist in, then in a way, like you think you're creating flexibility and right. freedom, but in a way you're actually kind of designing your own trap and yeah. you're burying yourself alive within this tomb. And where if you start off with a, a, a really small thing yeah. and you let it grow and develop organically with your players, then I think you can have something that's really character-centered with also a world that's vibrant and breathes around them. To me, that's 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 um, that's the dying earth. That's Melnimide. That's hy- Hyperborea. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What do you think, Hoy? Um, I think you're... Um Practically speaking, I agree with you. I can see how people might want to do it the other way because, um, you know, one thing that we've always talked about for me personally, even though I, I practically speaking, I, I move more in your direction. I, for me to be an effective dungeon master and maybe for an effective writer, think about, the, you know, the sort of creative have to believe that the world actually exists, right? Like mm-hmm. that can exist. So if, yeah. if anything can happen off the edge of the map, then it's, you know, oh, and anything goes like, oh, that sounds good then that doesn't work as well for me and I can't game master effectively. Um, but I don't, I don't know if that's what I'm saying. No, no, I, I'm no, not no, saying exactly what you're saying, but I'm just okay. saying that for me, so, so for some people, they have to imagine all of that in order for them mm-hmm. to even bring even the tiniest corner of the world alive. Right. Mm. All right. Uh, I'm not saying I'm that kind of person anymore, but I'm saying that that would have been the way I would have approached the game 15 years ago. And I can see a lot of people now, who are again who are writing epic fantasy and whatever they have to like work out like to the 10th jewel of power how much you know magical power it takes to cause this earthquake in 100 miles away or whatever um yeah. so so but as you as you say you could be boxing yourself in now bill you're you know an author how do you how do you approach this kind of problems whether it's in a game or as a you know a sort of more unitary creative work for the general public um yeah so I mean, like, there's something I've been working on that, and I was using that Ibn Battuta book as like reference for it. But it's it's so it's become so Byzantine, like what I've been writing, because I'm pantsing it. You know, I am writing, and I, I totally hear what you're saying, Hoy. Like, there are I think it comes down to the individual person. You know, some of us are are more comfortable uh, with uh, ambiguity, and some of us are not. Yeah. And I think that's kind of what it really boils down to. And I think for me. Um, you know, a lot of these worlds are sort of buried in our, you know, in our psychology or how would I say it, our subconscious. You know, a lot of things are buried in our sub- of subconscious. And I, and I like exploring that when I'm writing. And that's so often I'll write, I will not really plot it. And I will, you know, if it's a fantasy thing, I will allow those things to just kind of come in. Uh, because, mm-hmm. but then, then, then you get into that problem of like, okay, wait, now I've, now I've, now I've just created this enormous, uh, rumble and it's like now what do i do with it all so you know i mean there's there's just you know versus like plotting where you're like right and this is to me this has got to have been a plotted book where you yeah. plot it out and mm-hmm. you know and and then when you plot it out well you know because oftentimes you already know what the end is going to be 
and then you just go forward and you just fill the things in versus if you're like writing panting as they sometimes call it you can get it like that's where i am with this thing i've been writing for like 10 years it's like oh man what am i going to do with all this stuff now i just more and more characters keep popping up and i don't <laughs> even know what the world is anymore and i don't know what i wrote last last year you know what i mean i forget everything so <laughs> i don't know i don't know i think it's just um right. uh, well that's why we should never throw any away any of our drafts you just version a new one every day so that we can always go back <laughs> to the old one <laughs> <laughs> what's going on but i i think this really underlines this idea that there's no right or wrong way to do any of this stuff mm-hmm. you know if you are really excited about playing rune quest and you want to pick up one of those massive books on glorantha yeah and you want to really do a deep dive and you want to make sure that you understand that and you're studying it as though it's a textbook because you want that version of glorantha to come alive then awesome I don't want to do that. But if you want to do that, have fun with that. And if that gives you a sense of freedom, then that's great. That's, that's not point. my style. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Uh, it's interesting you mentioned RuneQuest because I was actually brought up during the Patreon book club because as we know that uh, Dan Alexander is a big RuneQuest player. Um, but we yeah. were talking about how this book in some ways would be more suited to a skill-based game such as RuneQuest or GURPS than a traditional class and level game like D&D. Um, because there's so many instances of the characters using very specific skills and having yeah. to sort of adapt to their environment. They can't, they're not like clearly a 10th level fighter that much better than everyone around them. Um, and to me, I think one of the most interesting things and I would love to steal is the set piece of them trying to steal back Hillel, the horse, right? <laughs> right. Uh, and the, ho- the, the, the animals are such great characters in this book, the minor yeah. bird, the elephants, the horses, right? And a, a great thing in sort of, sort of mythology, historical fiction, uh, stories of uh, just adventure and bravery is like the cattle raid or, or the horse the horse raid, right? And in D&D, it's always very yeah. incentivized towards a physical treasure. But think about how important, you know, domestic animals were to, to pre-modern civilizations, right? So uh, again, Grolanth is perfect for that. It's set in that perfect setting. They're no, semi-nomadic. It's like, can we do a game that's the set, set piece is about you know, raiding the enemy's camp and stealing all their horses or their elephants. And that, to me, would be uh, something that is not commonly done in a traditional D&D game, but would be a, tr- a tremendous thing to do in, you know, uh, as a role-playing adventure. And so that would be the set piece or thing that I would love to steal and try to play through with whatever the system of choices. And maybe try it in a traditional D&D game, see how well it goes. But I feel like it would work better in RuneQuest. Um, were there any set pieces or particular characters or anything like that that either of you would like to steal for your game i thought the idea of the beck and the kagan is very cool where you've got the two different leaders one is like a spiritual leader who's ultimately in charge of you know the the um the matters of the spirit and the soul um and these are this like this is like a beloved leader who like nobody people don't really have issues with and then there's the beck and they're like the rule maker the law enforcer and they're the ones who are constantly being murdered left and right and being replaced with the new beck right. um, but i also thought it was cool that like the kagan is basically in this like really like lavish comfortable prison yeah. um, right. and I, knows, knows he's going to be killed at a certain day and date because they're going to yeah. rot him right there in the <laughs> yeah i i just thought that that um that was really interesting and it was in inspiring me to think about other ways that you can look at how you can have um, uh, government and rulership in your worlds. Because I think we tend to really, we tend to, when we go into our, our, our fantasy RPG 
kind of world world designing. I think we come from a lot of we we have we come we bring we bring a lot of baggage with it. We assume everybody's everybody's capitalist mm-hmm. that they're all exchanging coins for goods. You know, we assume that there's like Murder either like hobos. a king or a mayor <laughs> or exactly. Right. So I like things that kind of can help us expand that thinking a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What yeah, about you, Bill? Yeah, I I I I did like that that those the double leaders. Um I think I think I mean I can't really think about what a, a system would be for this, you know what I mean? But I think you're right, it has to be more like task based. I don't know mm-hmm. if like um uh, I, my son was playing Blades in the Dark. I don't know if you guys know that system. Sure, I don't really heist, know it. Heist game. Yeah. Yeah, that's a heist thing, right? And there's a lot of heist in this. Oh yeah. yeah. And I wonder if um I didn't I haven't played it like I said, but I heard he he told me some really interesting things about the mechanics and got me really interested in it. So I mean I wonder if that, you know, because there's you know, there and there are a lot of like cool heists in this, but but at the same time, you know, again, this this goes back to this thing being sort of a uh, the 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 redhead stepchild of a of a of a literary fiction. There's there's there are better heists in in genre books that you that we mm-hmm. all would have been familiar with. So I think for me, the most again, I think what I said at the beginning, and I remember one time. I, I used to read Dragon Magazine, you know what I mean? Um, and 3.5, and there was a really cool adventure in one of them that was set with the Rus, the Rus or the Rus, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it was it was at that time, and the person who had written it, because, you know, it was it, the people who, who enter the adventures into that are, um, uh, you know, they're just, a lot of them are, it, they're uh, independent writers, right? Or, um, and the, the person had been, um, I think he was a, stu- a, stud- a student of this time period. So when he had created this adventure um, that had the roost and it was set in this real world, but it had the trolls, you know what I mean? It had the fen where you would go into the, and it had that kind of, that kind of stuff. I think for me, the, that, that again is like the most interesting thing about this, just trying to think about making a setting and trying to stay, you know, true to it and seeing how that would work. I think, uh, you know, one quick thought and I'll give you the last word, Bill. I think what I, I appreciate about this book also is the world, it felt fantastic, but there's no actual magic. Although to a lot of people, what Zelikman, you know, he's a physician and he brings with him the knowledge of all this, you know, I mean, he's smoking pot. He's you knows basically borderline understands anesthet. Well, he knows understands anesthesia. Sort of borderline understands um, antiseptics, right? Um, so he's in effect a sort of magical figure, uh, and uh, and the 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 um, the Kagan also seems. I mean, he's probably just got very good spies, but he seems to be almost a prophet. Like, oh, have you ever heard this thing about this? And I know this thing about. It. And they're all like, what? How did you know this? Right? I like playing in a sort of. Uh, again, it's, so this sort of echoes sword sorcery. It's sort of a low magic setting where things are mysterious and things happen, and we don't always understand why they happen. Other than, and it's not magic as a technology, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so I think that that to that extent, I think that Shaban is still staying true to sort of a, a sword and sorcery connection. He's more tenuously yeah. connected to sword and sorcery than to epic fantasy. Yeah. Um, I but agree. Bill, do you have any last thoughts before we uh, start to wrap up the show? Uh, whether this book or in something that we haven't mentioned yet. Um, no, just that I thought it, uh, I actually, yeah, I'm like, no, but yeah, um, that <laughs> I think uh, Robert Graves, I used to also read the Greek myths when I was a kid, his book on that. And that's something that he mentions is a ritualistic slaying every year of the leader. And so I just thought that was interesting when they talk about the, it's the, the, the Kagan. 
Kagan yeah, yeah, yeah. is garroted, right? And that's that's I think in that book. So I thought I thought that was I just thought that was an interesting connection, you know. And I'm mm. I'm I'm pretty sure that that's um I must be historic. I wonder if it's historically accurate. Actually, that's one one I didn't look up. If right. that's actually true, I don't know if you guys looked that up. That yeah, I don't know about thing. specifically, but I mean, there's not that much known about the Khazars, but but right, it seems true right. with the various king figures, right? We have the green man, we have the Aztec sun god. That these are right. are you know these figures that are that by dying they rejuvenate the land, right? And that's oh, the, the, the green, role. yeah. Um, yeah, so, I never thought about that. You know, or King Arthur will sleep until he's b- brought back. You know, that's kind of yeah. thing like that. So I think there is a. I mean, I don't want to get all Campbellian about it because I don't really believe in Campbell, but I think there is a theme. Jeff, any last thoughts on the book? Mostly just that I think that you guys are making a good point. I don't know if you're intentional. Uh, the 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 thing that I'm walking away from your conversation about this is that you can have really fun, um, I guess maybe it wouldn't even be called fantasy anymore, but fantasy role-playing without monsters and without magic. I mean, I, I think there is a space for that. Mm-hmm. And I, I I think it'd be cool like, be, to be involved in something like that, to play like a, a game of like old-school essentials or, or Dungeon Crawl Classics where there really is nothing supernatural in this world. Um, or the things that are supernatural are more just things that aren't quite understood. Mm. I think there is something very interesting potentially about that. From my standpoint, I think this is a uh, not a perfect book, but I think it's it's a very good book to sort of um, sort of see like what sort of continuity can be drawn from, like you know the sort of older Liber Moorcock. Yeah, I mean Moorcock's still with us, thankfully, but you know that there people are still sort of drawing on that tradition. It's not perfect, um, but I'm glad it was written and. You know, it's a lot of fun. So I, I definitely think I could see myself looking at this book again in a couple of years just to see if it, it holds up in any meaningful way. Okay. So having said that, uh, Bill, are you working on anything right now that you would want people to know about? Yeah, I would love to. So, I'm, uh, you know, my my little business is called Own Goal. Own Goal. It used to be Own Goal Books, but then my friend who helped me design the logo was like, I'm just going to make it Own Goal because, you know, you don't want to be trapped in making books. And it was, I think that was really um Prescient because, you know, I actually, Baby Barbarian, I'm working on a, with a Spanish game designer to make a tabletop version of it. Um, Cool. Yeah. Card game version. And then we did a little like video game, um, just a one, like a Metroidvania for Baby Barbarian and use some of the art in that. Um, And all this stuff is, uh, I think 2023 is my, I have all these things going. um, uh, And my, is my year to sort of, bring everything together and then like i said uh, this that stuff is kind of contingent on scout comics but mm-hmm. um so there's a lot of things brewing and the other thing that's uh, that i've been working on is another comic and we've been working with a um working with an ai guy and we're trying to figure out how to do like ethically sourced <laughs> ai comics you know what i mm-hmm. mean because um it's he does really interesting things but um it, you know it is a little bit problematic and uh, you know, um, depending upon how you're getting your art um, for your for generating your images. But mm-hmm. what what when when I was talking to the game designer, you know, we were both at this at this place where you know I think just like work has become hybrid, you know, where you can um, you can work online and you can also go into the office, you know, and it's actually better that way. I think that's also the the going to be the future of like tabletop games, comics, you know, all this kind of stuff. And so that's what I'm really working on building this year is, you know, kind of a hybrid model that um, uses, um, uh, you know, 
various characters and worlds that I create and then having them be in different mediums. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and so that's what I'm working on, but still it's all, it's all, it's all, it's all, it's all cooking. It's all cooking right now, except for baby barbarian, which is going to be released. So, so where should people go to sort of, uh, keep tabs on this and find out what's happening with that? Well, I'm on Instagram on goal books and we can also go to on goal books. Um, I have, you know, a landing page set up. Um, and I'm on Facebook, um, and Twitter, you know, I think at W Gosline, but Twitter is a little bit, I don't really right. use it that much and every day right. and it's a little bit. <laughs> right. By the point. time we release this episode, it might not be there anymore. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. There we go. Well, uh, speaking of social media, if you do want to find us, uh, we are still on Twitter as of this moment at appendix underscore N. Uh, if you want to drop us a note, you can also do that at appendix N book club at gmail.com. And Jeff, how about our Patreon? Yes, I was in West Virginia earlier today, so I was unable to attend the patron book club. But hoy, correct me if I'm wrong. We were joined today by Robert Coleman, Brandon Cruz, Rick Byrne, Dan Alexander, and Adam Stiers. Is that correct? Absolutely, yes. That's awesome. And our patrons are able to join us before our um, before our proper episodes so they can hang out with us and chat with us about what they thought about the book. Um, I'd also like to give a shout out to some new patrons. Thank you to Lawrence Bacar and Michael Chapman for your support. I'm also going to go ahead and reach my hand in the bag and pull out a few more names. So thank you to Deimos Saklas, Eric Hallstrom, Robert Poyton, Carson Torvald, Robbie Fioto, Gentle Reader, Luana Sayada, Matt Hildebrand, and Hyperlexic for your support. It is much appreciated. Our patrons can also vote on which books that we are going to be covering. And um, most recently, uh, the polls are in for 139. We'll be covering Jack Vance's Kugel Saga. For 140, we'll be covering Lloyd Alexander's The Book of Three. Mm, Nice. And when this drops, we will be doing our patron poll for episode 144. And hoy, what are our options for that poll? Okay, so uh, semi-inspired by this book, um, but the stuff I'd want to do anyway. The theme is Orientalist Extravaganzas. And the books that we'll be reading, uh, choosing from will be William Beckford's Vathek, F. Marion Crawford's Khaled, Gustave Flaubert's Salambo, and George Meredith's The Shaving of Shagpat. Now, all of these are in the public domain, so you should not have any problem finding these books. All right, so there you go. Orientalist extravaganzas. Orientalist. Yeah, interesting. Sorry. (laughs) Perfect. All right. Uh, Bill, it's been such an honor to have you on, and I'm really uh, will be thrilled to see uh, how your uh, sort of creative multiverse expands this year. <laughs> and I'll be hanging out for, <laughs> out for it. Yeah, and thanks for joining us and giving us a little peek into your mind. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me, and I really enjoy your show, as I said. And yeah, I look forward to listening more. And congratulations on you know all the all those patrons. That's awesome. Good for you guys. Awesome. Yeah. We couldn't do without all of you fans. And for all those of you who are not on Patreon, we still love you anyway, but (laughs) come on if you can. But just a little bit less. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) A little more love. (laughs) Money can buy Uh, you love. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) We can't. We can't. All right. All right, everybody. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed. Hello, Appendix N Book Club listeners. This is Oliver Brackenbury, editor of a brand new publication, New Edge Sword and Sorcery Magazine. 
from an in-depth essay on C.L. Moore by Cora Bueller, to a review of Kirk A. Johnson's latest book, to an original story by SNS veteran David C. Smith, to a story by emerging author T.K. Rex, New Edge Sword and Sorcery covers the genre's past, present, and exciting future. Made with love for the classics and an inclusive, boundary-pushing approach to storytelling, there is something for everybody. Check it out at newedgeswordandsorcery.com.